Can you dream of a world immune to cancer? Hello everyone, my name is Nick and I'm the host of the annual live stream for The Cure where content creators and podcasters from around the world join me to raise money for the Cancer Research Institute and Immunotherapy Research, which is training the body's immune system to fight against all forms of cancer. Over the past seven years, thanks to the power of indie podcasters and the indie podcasting community and listeners just like you listening to this right now, we have raised over $90,000. And as I record this now, the eighth annual live stream for The Cure is barreling down upon us really, really quickly in just about two weeks. So join us, please, from May 29th through June 1st for 48 hours of amazing content from people all over the world and help us fight for a world immune to cancer. And I'll return you to your regularly scheduled programming. Thank you so, so much. And together, we can make a difference. I'm supposed to act like they aren't here. Assuming there's a they at all. It may just be my imagination. Whatever it is that's watching. It's not human. Unlike little dark-eyed Donna, it doesn't ever blink. What does a scanner see? Into the head? Down into the heart? Does it see into me? Into us? Clearly or darkly? I hope it sees clearly because I can't any longer see into myself. I see only Mark. I hope for everyone's sake the scanners do better. Because if the scanner sees only darkly the way I do, then I'm cursed and cursed again and will only wind up dead this way, knowing very little and getting that little fragment wrong. Hi everyone, I'm Em and welcome to Verbal Diorama episode 150, A Scanner Darkly. This is the podcast that's all about the history and legacy of movies you know and movies you don't. And welcome to the 150th episode of Verbal Diorama. I am amazed that I've got to 150 episodes, I'll be honest. But I'm so grateful that you are here. To everyone who's listening, whether you are a returning regular listener, whether you've been with me for 150 episodes or whether you're a brand new listener and this is literally your first episode. You've got a lot of catching up to do, but I'm so glad that you're here. Thank you for being here. Thank you for choosing this podcast. And thank you for being here for the history and legacy of A Scanner Darkly. Because I really feel like this is one of Keanu Reeves' lesser known performances. And I also think it's one of Philip K. Dick's lesser known adaptations as well. 
But one of the reasons why I'm doing this Scanner Darkly is not just because it wasn't on my list, because believe me, this is a movie that I have enjoyed for a very long time and it has been on my list to do. But when it came to the 150th episode, I actually put it out to patrons to suggest movies for episode 150. I got some amazing suggestions. Like seriously, some of the movies that the patrons suggested were incredible and it was such a hard choice. But then Sam came along and Sam suggested A Scanner Darkly. And, you know, Sam, he's a man who knows what women want. Just ask his wife, Stacey. But in the the absence of The Ginger Princess, I can tell you that Sam knows what I like. And he put forward a scanner darkly and he knows that I love animation and he knows that I love Keanu. And this is an animated movie starring Keanu Reeves. So you can imagine my excitement at talking about a scanner darkly and looking into the history and legacy of a scanner darkly because this is a fascinating story. And before I go into that, I really just want to say a huge thank you to everyone who listened to the previous episodes that I put out on The Crow and Dodgeball. and. I'm only going to say this once because it's a bit childish, but the fact I'm going from balls in the last episode to dick in this one is not lost on me, but I am not going to do any balls jokes this time, only because I feel like this is not really the episode to be talking about balls jokes. So I'm also going to refrain from dick jokes as well, because, you know, This is a family-friendly podcast, and it is also a semi-serious episode. I mean, this is a movie that does feature some actual animated sex scenes, but I'm actually not going to talk about that because I feel like, yeah, that is a particular scene that I could maybe pause and rewatch several times. But anyway, but the only dick that we are here for in episode 150 is Philip K. So before we go into everything to do with A Scanner Darkly, here's the trailer for A Scanner Darkly. It may just be my imagination. Whatever it is that's watching, it's not human. Gentlemen, you are about to witness for approximately 61 cents the perfect homemade silencer. That sure is some silencer. Drive over to my place, kick back, get some tequila. (laughs) They're in my hair, on my skin, they're all over the place. This is a world getting progressively worse. Can we not agree on that? What's on the dessert menu? Damage has taken place to the normally dominant left hemisphere, and the right hemisphere is attempting to compensate. Two hemispheres of my brain. Competing? Yes. I could be murdered. How'd I get here? I tip my hat to any entity that could bring so much integrity to evil. What if they come in through the back door or the bathroom window like that infamous Beatles song? To sacrifice someone without them ever knowing it. Scanner see into the head, into the heart. Does it see into me clearly or dark? 
a totalitarian society in the near future, the undercover detective Bob Arcter is working with a small-time group of drug users trying to reach the big distributors of a brain-damaging drug called Substance D. When Bob begins to lose his own identity and have schizophrenic behaviour, he had submitted to tests to check his mental conditions. Let's talk about the cast in this movie. We have, obviously, Keanu Reeves as Bob Arcter, a.k.a. Fred, Robert Downey Jr. as James Barris, Woody Harrelson as Ernie Luckman, Winona Ryder as Donna Hawthorne, and Rory Cochran as Charles Freck. A Scanner Darkly has a screenplay by Richard Linklater, is directed by Richard Linklater, and is based on A Scanner Darkly by Philip K. Dick. And if you don't know Philip K. Dick for his novels, you'll undoubtedly know some of the adaptations that have been made of his stories. Movies like Blade Runner, Total Recall, Minority Report, and TV shows like The Man in the High Castle. Dick had started writing in the early 50s and his first novel was published in 1955. His cumulative works have sold roughly 20 million copies and been translated to 25 different languages. A Scanner Darkly, never been out of print in its 27-year existence, and is also one of the three top-selling Dick novels, would be published towards the end of his career in 1977, but it was a novel with a long gestation period. It's also semi-autobiographical and based on Dick's experiences in the early 70s, experimenting with and then becoming hooked on amphetamines. After his fourth wife left him in early 1970, he opened up his home to drug addicts and vagrants, basically anyone who wanted to live there. As a result, he stopped writing and became addicted to drugs, and it's not rocket science to see where the semi-autobiographical parts of A Scanner Darkly might be coming from. Two years passed, and Dick left his home to deliver a speech in Canada, and while he was gone, his house was allegedly burgled, and afterwards he attempted suicide. After a period of psychosis, he became insistent on recovery from his amphetamine addiction and became a participant in XKLA, itself an experimental drug rehabilitation centre. It was at XKLA that he thought of the idea that a rehab clinic could actually be the ones secretly harvesting and dealing the very drugs that they're claiming to get people off. A supply and demand situation, you might say. He became completely clean and sober by February 1973, and developed a first draft of what would become a Scanner Darkly in March. A few months later, his fifth wife, Tessa, would give birth to their first child together, and so a Scanner Darkly was put on hold, and instead he finished Flow My Tears, The Policeman Said, released in 1974, and from it received the prestigious John W. Campbell Award. Like any works of an autobiographical or semi-autobiographical nature, Dick found it torturous to write A Scanner Darkly in parts, his wife Tessa would often assist him and together they would write and rewrite it over three years. Because of her contributions, Dick wrote up a contract giving Tessa Dick half the rights and half of the income derived from A Scanner Darkly. The book was optioned by Ballantine Books SF Division and it was the head of the division, Judy Lindell Ray, who suggested changing the timeline from the 70s where it was currently set to the 90s to make it more science fiction, showing a future dystopian drug-addicted society. Del Rey also emphasised the more science fiction elements like the scramble suits. Philip K. Dick would die following two strokes in 1982. The only film adaptation of his books that he ever saw was an early release version of Blade Runner, based of course on his novel Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, but he would die four months before that film's general release. 
In 2001, Richard Linklater would make an ambitious experimental animated movie called Waking Life, which was entirely digitally rotoscoped. Waking Life would underperform at the box office, but while he was making Waking Life, he was considering making an adaptation of a Philip K. Dick novel. That novel was Ubik, but because he couldn't gain the rights, he began to think of a Scanner Darkly instead and discussed it with producer Tommy Pilotta. He wanted to make a dark personal story without the bombast of many previous adaptations of Dick's works. He wanted to retain the sad, tragic story and embrace the comedy, and he wanted to retain as much creative control as possible with a small budget. And with the experience of Waking Life in his mind, he wanted to make a Scanner Darkly animated. It was paramount to both Linklater and Pilotta that Philip K. Dick's estate approved of the adaptation, and Pilotta wrote a personal appeal explaining what they would like to do and how faithful to the book it was going to be. Owning and operating their father's trust were Laura Leslie and Isa Hackett, Philip K. Dick's daughters, who weren't keen on a, in inverted commas, cartoon version, their words not mine. Leslie and Hackett were very hands-on and proactive with adaptations of their father's works, following high-profile recent adaptations of Minority Report and Paycheck. They met with Linklater and were pleased that he intended to treat one of their father's most personal stories with respect and not gloss over the drug aspects and pitfalls of substance abuse. Someone who knew a lot about substance abuse and how that could affect your life was Robert Downey Jr. Nowadays, of course, he's the biggest star in the MCU and one of the biggest stars in the world. But back in the early 2000s, he was in recovery from drug addiction. After a few supporting roles in the early 2000s, he was cast as the lead in the excellent Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, directorial debut of the excellent Shane Black, who I've talked about in this podcast many, many times in the past. There's so many Shane Black episodes. He read the script of The Scanner Darkly and thought it was one of the strangest scripts he'd ever read. He was immediately drawn to the flamboyant Barris and arguably it's one of the best things in the whole movie. And this is a movie with Keanu Reeves in, guys. I love Robert Downey Jr. in this movie. He would actually write his lines on post-it notes. And because the background of scenes didn't really matter because it was all going to be animated, they were actually all over the place in the live-action footage. But I can't do episode 150 or talk about A Scanner Darkly without talking about the man, the myth, the legend, Rory Cochran. <laughs> Sorry, Rory. I actually mean Keanu, of course. Richard Linklater wanted Keanu immediately for the dual role of Bob Arctor and Fred because he wanted someone who the audience could immediately warm to. But he wasn't sure that Reeves would want to do another science fiction movie so soon after the Matrix sequels. But Keanu was fascinated by the dual roles, the complexity of taking on such an ambitious project, and the fact that it was a faithful adaptation. Plus, it meant reuniting with Winona Ryder. They'd last worked together on Bram Stoker's Dracula in 1992. That's episode 118 of this podcast. And Ryder also had personal connections to this story, with her godfather, Timothy Leary, being friends with Philip K. Dick, as well as her father also being involved in the same social circles. To keep costs down for this movie, and cost is something that I'm going to go into in this movie, because there were a lot of financial issues with this movie, but both Keanu Reeves and Winona Ryder agreed to be paid SAG scale rates, which equated to $72,000 each, plus a portion of any profits. The script was fine-tuned during a two-week rehearsal period and filming took place in Austin, Texas. They'd found a reasonably run-down house to use as Bob's house and the previous tenants had actually left it in such a state that 
The production didn't actually have to do much to make it look like it was run down. Six weeks of live-action filming commenced on the 17th of May 2004, and it was a mostly uneventful affair with a relaxed atmosphere. And because of this, sometimes the actors forgot they were actually going to be animated. There was little emphasis on this movie on things like lighting and makeup, because everyone and everything was going to be animated over. And really, as a film about identity and the merging of identity, there's really no better way to portray this dichotomy than with rotoscoped animation, itself consisting of two identities, the live action film underneath and the animation placed on top. So let's talk about the rotoscoped animation and also the myriad of problems that this movie actually had. Because I've talked about rotoscoping before, it was something that Disney did, and in its basic form, it's taking the live action film and tracing over it frame by frame. Disney animators used this to make human or anthropomorphic characters move realistically, used it for characters like Snow White, Cinderella and Sleeping Beauty, all the way through to more modern characters like Ariel in The Little Mermaid. It was a technique not unique to Disney. It was invented in 1915 and was used by a multitude of animation studios, as well as in music videos as well. Like Aha's Take On Me is a great example of how they used rotoscope animation. And that's a great music video. That's genuinely one of the greatest music videos of all time. Animator and computer scientist Bob Sabiston developed a computer-assisted interpolated rotoscoping process that he named Rotoshop in 1997. It was originally developed for an animation contest. And in 1999, he developed a short called Snack and Drink with producer Tommy Pilotta. Yep, the same guy that I mentioned before. Snack and Drink won several festival awards and he would also go on to work with Pilotta and Richard Linklater on Waking Life. As Rotoshop was proprietary software and completely owned and solely developed by Sabiston when he was hired as head of animation in 2004 to work on A Scanner Darkly, not only did he have to modify the software substantially for use on A Scanner Darkly, he also had to train up 30 animators not all of whom had filmmaking experience, to help animate the movie. I'm going to put a pin in that and come back to it in a little bit. So the movie was filmed as of the summer of 2004, and it had a release date scheduled for September 2005, with animation starting in October 2004. That would give it about a year of post-production. And while Linklater was confident about the live-action filming, he was less confident about the animation portion and so left this in the capable hands of Bob Sabiston, the head of animation. The core design of the animation was based on designs by Patrick Thornton to make it look like a living, breathing comic book with 3D compositing by Randy Cole. Richard Linklater went off to make Bad News Bears and local animators were hired to work on the interpolated rotoscoping of A Scanner Darkly. And this is where the story starts to skew off a little bit. Because all these animators needed training, they had differing levels of animation experience, and the only person who could really train them on this software was Bob Sabiston. Sabiston himself, despite being the head of animation, wasn't privy to any financial or scheduling meetings and was totally out of the loop and had no input into how long this movie might take to make. Two months passed and Linklater and head of Warner Independent Pictures, Mark Gill, wanted an update on how it was going. But while some of the shots had been done, other animators were still being trained and it wasn't keeping up to the schedule they had. To play catch up, the animators worked 18 hour days, over weekends, over Christmas and New Year, but even that didn't help. And six months into the process, Sabiston and his team requested an extension to the animation schedule, as well as an increase of the animation budget. 
they ended up staging a walkout in protest. Their argument, which is sound really, was that the studio can't expect a team of just 30 animators to animate an entire movie in five months. That if they wanted it that quickly, they'd have to cut corners, which Richard Linklater didn't want them to do. The studio had taken estimates from the production of Waking Life without taking the differences between the two productions into account. Their animation style and the extra requirements of a Scanner Darkly, such as a Scanner Darkly had a 24 frames per second frame rate, as opposed to Waking Life's 12 frames per second, basically it needed double the frames. The request for more time and more money did not go down very well. Like, it went as badly as it could have gone. While Sabiston and his team were away from the office, Tommy Pelotta changed the locks, seized equipment and the entire team was replaced, ending the collaboration on both sides rather bitterly. It's worth noting that Bob Sabiston went on to found his own production company, Flat Black Films, and so his career never faltered despite this setback. But in an interview with The Dissolve, Sabiston reminisced rather graciously about the process, what happened and how he felt about being forced to be removed from a scanner darkly and his four-course senior team of Patrick Thornton, Randy Cole, Katie O'Connor and Jennifer Drummond only receiving an additional animation buy credit despite their six months of hard work. As per the terms of his contract, Sabiston tried to get them to stop using his software and Warner Independent threatened to sue him. In the end, a begrudging agreement was made that they could finish the movie with his software, but without him. Sabiston ended up receiving the full amount that he would have been paid had he completed the work, but he had to plead with Linklater to include his team in the credits. One of the key features of Sabiston and his team's work was the scramble suit. Originally featured more prominently in the book, it's reduced in the movie due to the issues with the original animation team being fired. Originally described by Dick as a million and a half physiognomic fraction representations of various people, every conceivable eye colour, hair colour, shape and type of nose, formation of teeth, configuration of facial bone structure projected at any nanosecond and then switched to the next. Linklater wanted the movie version to be clearer to show visible face portions which would hold for several frames before changing. Keanu Reeves was still acting out the scramble suit portions and then multiple different images were laid over the top of him. And this is why for some of the later scenes with the medical professionals, it's the character of Bob rather than the scramble suit. It was intended to have him in the suit during these medical examinations. However, they simply ran out of time to do it. Ironically, it cost the studio the same amount to replace the animation team than it would have done to retain the team they had. The new animation team was headed by Jason Archer and Paul Beck, Archer and Beck had previously also worked on Waking Life and they and their team of 25 animators finished the remaining work in four months. Tommy Pilotta became much more involved in the day-to-day -day animation work, ensuring strict deadlines and style standards for the movie's visuals, a bit like when you have standards for your company's promotional material. Linklater mostly stayed away during this period, finding it painful to watch due to the process taking longer than expected. Scanner Darkly was already unprecedented in its style and scope and was now unprecedented in the budgetary and time constraints it needed to deliver those in. And very much like the previous episode on Dodgeball, this type of adult-orientated animated film was unproven territory. There was no previously successful formula to base a Scanner Darkly on. Philip K. Dick's adaptations mostly always did well and 
I think we're all guilty of forgetting that Blade Runner was a bit of a grower, but it's now seen as one of the greatest sci-fi movies of all time. I actually preferred sequel, if I'm being honest, but I digress. And let's put a pin in that and talk about it in a future episode. But basically what I'm saying is animation aimed at adults was more of a risk because, as I've said before countless times, it's a medium often and erroneously attributed to being just for children. And because of this and other reasons, A Scanner Darkly was misunderstood and also miscalculated on its release. A test screening was scheduled for December 2005 and the movie was still not completely finished. It would be an editing trick to cut the final scene and blend the two endings with a cinematic dissolve, which would provide the compromise needed to get the movie finished. The screening went well and garnered positive reviews, but the revised release date of 31st of March 2006 was right around the corner. Last-minute adjustments were given to Downey's facial expressions, and by January the 9th, it was decided there was no real time for a marketing push due to the delays and extra time needed to fine-tune the movie's look. The release date was pushed back again to 7th of July 2006, which helped with the marketing side, but pitted the movie against some of the biggest films of 2006, which is something I'm going to come to in a little bit. The movie ends with an abridged version of the afterword of the novel in which Dick lists the people he knew who have suffered irreparable physical and or mental damage from substance abuse, including himself as a victim of permanent pancreatic damage, simply credited as Phil. Let's segue rather ungraciously from Phil to Bob, or should I say Keanu, because I want to go into the obligatory Keanu reference of this episode. And, oh no, how am I going to link this movie to Keanu Reeves? I cannot possibly think of any way to link it. I guess I will just have to give up. Um, (laughs) I mean, Keanu's in this movie, so yeah, it's kind of easy to link him. I haven't actually featured a Keanu Reeves movie in a while, so yeah, this is super easy. He plays Bob Arctor in this movie, and he's really good in this movie. I think Keanu as an actor is, given the short straw a lot of the time, I think a lot of people think that he's a bad actor, but I think he's perfectly suited to something like this because the role of Bob Arctor isn't supposed to be some sort of out there bombastic person. You know, he's supposed to be like quite mellow and obviously quite paranoid and under the substance of drugs. And I think Keanu plays this role pretty perfectly, I have to say. So that is the obligatory Keanu reference. That is how I'm going to link this movie to Keanu Reeves. So I mentioned that most of the filming of the movie took place in Austin and also. That extends to the music as well. So the music was recorded in the Austin home of composer Graham Reynolds. The composition and recording process took over 18 months because the animation portion of the movie was so time-consuming and the music consisted of mostly acoustic instruments which were made to sound more synthesised. And the early test screening that I mentioned, because it didn't have any of Reynolds' music in it, actually consisted of all Radiohead tracks, which honestly pretty perfect to have Radiohead in this movie. So let's talk about the release of A Scanner Darkly. It was released on the 7th of July 2006. It was released the same week as Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Man's Chest. So that's the first reason why this movie probably didn't do so well. It also would only open in 17 cinemas initially in the US. And so when it came to its first week, it opened in a very lowly 18th place. So in its second week, it jumped eight places to 10th because it opened in more cinemas, but it was still lagging behind other recent releases. 
Recent releases at the time that were in the top five included Superman Returns, previous episode, episode 90, The Devil Wears Prada, and also Pixar's Cars. This movie never reached higher than 10th in the US box office and basically continued to spiral down the charts and really never got much exposure. So when it comes to the financials of this movie, this was a more expensive movie than they wanted. And A Scanner Darkly would end up grossing $5.5 million in the US and $2.2 million internationally for a worldwide gross of $7.7 million. That is a million dollars less than its budget of $8.7 million. That does make it the most expensive rotoscoped animated feature, but also the highest grossing rotoscoped animated feature not taking inflation into account. And critics were generally favourable on a scanner darkly with a 68% on Rotten Tomatoes and generally praising it for its visuals and its faithfulness to Dick's original story. It goes without saying, it didn't get nominated for any awards. There are no sequels to this movie. There's no spiritual sequel to this movie. Philip K. Dick never wrote a sequel to this movie. I don't think Philip K. Dick actually wrote any sequels to any of his books, but I'm hoping that a Philip K. Dick fan is listening and can maybe confirm that, but I'm pretty certain he never wrote a sequel to anything he ever wrote. And obviously, the back catalogue of Philip K. Dick is huge. He wrote hundreds of books and short stories. So there's a lot of Philip K. Dick stuff out there. But when it came to A Scanner Darkly, this was very much a single entity. There was never going to be anything after it. And really, there's nothing like it either. You could argue that Waking Life is kind of similar. I've actually not seen Waking Life. I've seen bits of it, but I've not seen it in its entirety. That was obviously very much the precursor to this movie. But other than that, there's nothing else really like this movie. And again, one of the reasons why it seemed like such a perfect episode of 150, this movie feels so unique in pretty much every aspect. Let's move over to social media thoughts. So I like to ask on Patreon, on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook what people think. And as always, I'm going to start with the patrons of this podcast. I'm going to start with perennial commenter Andy, of course. And Andy says, A scanner darkly has all the hallmarks of a verbal diorama favourite, hand-drawn animation and Keanu Reeves. Not sure an insults of Richard Linklater. Honestly, I haven't seen it, but I really could miss commenting on episode 150. Congratulations. Well, thank you, Andy. I really do think that you should watch this movie because I'd be really interested on your thoughts on this movie, my thoughts on Richard Linklater, to be honest, I've not seen a lot of his stuff. This is probably the one movie of his that I've seen more than anything else, apart from maybe School of Rock. Love School of Rock. But, well, thank you for commenting and thank you for your congratulations. And obviously you should listen to Andy's podcast. It is called Geek Salad. It is the one-stop shop for everything geek in your life, whether that's movies, music, TV shows, games, literally anything. I'll put some information about Geek Salad in the show notes. Please have a listen. We also have a patron comment from Ian who said, Congratulations on getting to 150 episodes. I'm not surprised you got here and hope there are many more to come. I haven't heard of this one, so I'm looking forward to finding out all about it. Well, thank you so much, Ian. Personally, I'm quite surprised that I got here, but I can guarantee there is many more episodes to come. Hopefully 150 more, let's say. Let's just, let's just put that out there. Yeah, maybe we'll get to 300 episodes and then I'll call it quits. But otherwise, this is a great movie and you should definitely watch it. We have a patron comment from Vern who said, I just rewatched this flick. Totally loved the rotoscoped animation. 
Link Nature's adaptation was a good one for sure. Very interested to read the book now. And it's funny you say that because I've actually never read any of Philip K. Dick's books, which is weird because I am genuinely such a fan of the movie adaptations of his works, but I've never actually picked up a Philip K. Dick novel. And I think that I might have to do that too. But because Vern is one of our patrons, quick plug for his podcast. It's called Cinema Recall. And basically, Cinema Recall is all about discussing iconic moments in film. Cinema Recall also loves cult movies as well, which is probably why Scanner Darkly is right up Vern's alley. I'll pop some information for Cinema Recall in the show notes. We also have a Patreon comment from Laurel, who said, I stood in line for hours for a surprise screening this at South by Southwest years ago and was devastated when I couldn't get in. Then I read the book in anticipation of its release. It's one of the least adaptable things I've ever read, so I admire the effort, even though it doesn't always translate. Rotoscope was the way to go, and it's more refined, though less effective than in Waking Life. Linklater overall doesn't get enough credit for his range and innovation. Fun fact, my dad and uncle both worked on Slacker, so we've got family ties to his early work. And that's actually quite interesting. Just generally, your comment's quite interesting, Laurel. The fact that you were going to go and see a surprise screening of this at South by Southwest. When you hadn't even read the book, was that just because of that sort of style of animation? Was that a Keanu thing? Let me know. <laughs> but also that your dad and uncle have worked on a Linklater film. That's also quite interesting too. I'm going to pop in a plug here for Laurel's podcast. She is one of the hosts, along with her husband, Derek, of the excellent podcast, The Midnight Myth. It is the podcast for all of your mythology, philosophy and history needs mixed with popular culture and basically they're there all in the search to find the perfect story. What is the perfect story? Well, you need to listen to The Midnight Myth to find out. And the final patron comment is from the man who basically made this episode happen and that is Sam. And Sam says, Book's great, movies and overlooked gem. This episode would not be here without Sam. And so I wanted to talk a little bit about Sam's podcast because he suggested this movie and Sam is one of the most wonderful podcasters out there podcasting right now. Movie Reviews in 20 Cues is his podcast and basically it's him and Liz and Kahu and Matthew and Stacey, sometimes all of them, sometimes a couple of them. And basically they just ask 20 crazy ass questions about the movie they're featuring. It's a podcast that I find completely hilarious. So information in the show notes, Full movie reviews in 20 cues. And a huge thank you to Sam for suggesting this amazing episode. Moving over to Twitter, we're going to start with at Mark AC Brown, who simply said, Great film. I can't disagree with that. At Stuntgoat75 said, Been so long since I've seen it, I just remember the rotoscope animation added to the weird and ease of the film. At Phil the Bear said, The most faithful of any Philip K. Dick novel on screen and an all round amazing film. At Connections Cult said, I was disappointed by the lack of exploding heads. That's a must for any Scanners film. Badumch. And finally, at One Gifts said, I have a terrible memory of this. I only watched this once while drunk and the swimmy rotoscope animation made me throw up. I'm so very sorry about that. But yes, I can understand how if you've maybe had a little bit of alcohol or maybe some illegal substances as depicted in this movie, you might get a little bit trippy and the visuals might incur some vomit or something. I can totally get that, but I'm really sorry that happened to you and you have that association with this movie. 
No comments over on Instagram or Facebook this time, but a huge thank you to everyone who commented on A Scanner Darkly, who sent congratulations for the 150th episode. And basically, thank you for being awesome for 150 episodes. It feels like, as a society, we're only getting more and more paranoid. While this movie didn't necessarily resonate with audiences in 2006, it feels like it kind of does today. The more our lives are watched and assessed with cameras everywhere, with our lives and lifestyles running 24 hours a day, seven days a week, with the convenience of our lives and a constant sense of unease in the people who are in power. I didn't actually know this story was semi-autobiographical. And honestly, I think making this animated was not only a stylistic work of genius, as I mentioned, to highlight the loss of identity and show multiple facets of identity, but also to make this a wholly unique experience, which it wouldn't have if it were live action. It would just melt into the myriad of other live action adaptations of Philip K. Dick. It's the story of how easy it is to spiral. Bob Arctus starts out as a well-respected family man. Or does he? Because he's a rather unreliable narrator, to be honest. But let's say his family was true. He begins to work for the government to investigate the use of substance D, therefore becoming addicted, suffering hallucinations and becomes schizophrenic, and then becomes a pawn for the real reason he's there, to infiltrate the manufacturing of the drug in the first place. But he can't know that that's the real reason he's there. Otherwise, his cover would be blown. This is full-on mental breakdown territory. It's about that uncontrollable descent into darkness and depravity that isn't just reserved for societal reprobates. It suggests it can happen to any one of us and also shows how we'd go about hiding our addictions with the world. And so really, if you think about it, this is a full-blown psychological sci-fi horror movie. And while its animation style won't appeal to everyone, I certainly think it heightens its subject matter, makes it more dystopian, almost disassociates us to the realities of this world, and yet it's genuine in its depiction of Philip K. Dick's life. It saddens me slightly that this wasn't better received on its release, but definitely in the intervening years, it seems to be more well-regarded, especially post-Matrix Keanu, and it's as critically well-regarded as Point Break, which I find bizarre that Point Break only has a 69% of Rotten Tomatoes, but I digress once more. There's nothing out there quite like this movie. And due to its problematic production, there probably never will be. It may be one of the lesser-known Philip K. Dick adaptations, because I think Blade Runner, Total Recall and Minority Report tend to be the main ones that people think of, but I certainly feel like it's one of the most well-realised. And it's thanks to Interpolated Rotoscope. And one, Mr. Keanu Reeves, of course. Thank you for listening. As always, I would love to hear your thoughts on A Scanner Darkly. If you want to get involved and you want to help this podcast grow for the next 150 episodes, that would be amazing. You can get your comments read out in episodes. All you need to do is comment on the thoughts posts that go up on social media. They usually go up on a Saturday. Leave a comment and I will read it out in this podcast. Now, as I mentioned, this episode came about from a request to the patrons of this podcast. Now, I have some wonderful patrons on this podcast and they do support this podcast financially. but this podcast is free and it always will be free. So if you want to support it without paying a penny, you can do so by telling your friends and family about this podcast. You can also get involved on social media on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Letterboxd at Verbal Diorama. 
basically retweet and like posts. You can also follow me on there as well. You can talk to me on there. Please talk to me about Keanu Reeves. You can also leave a rating or review wherever you found this podcast. That would be amazing. I'm not going to tell you to give me five stars, but that would be really cool. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. And if you like this episode on a scanner darkly, you might also like one of the following episodes. Now, I was not sure what to suggest because I haven't done anything like a scanner darkly. It's so unique. I've not done any of the Philip K. Dick adaptations. So I thought I'd suggest the other landmark episodes of this podcast. Episode 50 on Toy Story and episode 100 on Avengers Endgame. As always, give me feedback. Let me know. These recommendations are rubbish. I don't care. Let me know anyway. I want to talk to you about the next episode, episode 151. And I'm actually going to be starting a new mini-series called Heroes Through the Decades. And that is basically what it says on the tin. I'm talking about heroes and I'm going to be talking about different movie each decade. And I'm starting in the 1960s with probably not the typical cinematic hero that you'd probably immediately go to, but a hero all the same. Someone steeped in rich Greek mythology. We're going to be going to 1963 and the adaptation of the famous mythological story, Jason and the Golden Fleece. I am, of course, talking about Jason and the Argonauts with those masterful Ray Harryhausen stop-motion monsters. I'm so excited to talk about this. This movie was a childhood favourite of mine, along with movies like Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger and Clash of the Titans. And I chose Jason as the typical cinematic hero. And really, let's be honest, on Verbal Diorama, any excuse to talk Ray Harryhausen because I haven't really done so yet. And cinema would not be cinema without the influence of Harryhausen. So please join me next week as I talk 1963's Jason and the Argonauts. Before I go, huge thank you to the patrons of this podcast, to Simon E, Sade, Claudia, Simon B, Laurel, Derek, Vern, Kristen, Kat, Andy, Mike, Griff, Luke, Emily, Michael, Scott, Brendan, Ian M, Lisa, Sam, Will, Jack, Dave, Chris, Stuart, Ian D, Jason and Sunny. It's like you know me. You can read me. <laughs> That's a quote from this movie, by the way. I also have a merch store. It's verbaldiorama.com slash merch. There are mummy-themed t-shirts in there. There will be more eventually. I promise I'm just finalising some designs. You can get in touch with me if you email verbaldiorama at gmail.com. You can say hi. You can also fill out a contact form at verbaldiorama.com. And you can also pop over to filmstories.co.uk and you can read the features that I write for the website. And you can also check out my column on independent podcasting in the magazine, which... I am just about to submit column number 24. How crazy is that? 24 issues of that magazine contain a column by me. Mental. And finally, this has been a story about people who were punished entirely too much for what they did. Let them play again in some other way and let them be happy. Bye. Movie should know.